if Steve Jobs were to enter the beast category, uh, and may he rest in peace. So that's never going to happen. But uh, you know, it, he he might take a similar approach, which is like design a product, you know, b- from the consumer backwards, and focus on a consumer experience that is so definitively superior uh, that it just builds tremendous brand loyalty. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, my guest is Lenny Leibovich, founder of Pre-Brands. Lenny, welcome to the show. We're interested in hearing your thoughts today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So, to be here. Thank you. So before we jump into what exactly pre-brands is and how you differentiate yourself in the food and consumer marketplace. Why don't you give us some background about Lenny Leibovich and, and what makes you tick? What makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning? And maybe a little bit about your journey. You originally started out in the financial industry and how'd you get into food? Yeah, so uh, I've always been uh, kind of an entrepreneurial kid. Uh, I had different uh, kind of entrepreneurial businesses as a kid, all legal, I might add. Um, but, uh, in anything from like having a baseball card, sports collectible business to, you know, lawn routes to, I, I would do anything, uh, that would, uh, you know, basically expand my, uh, you know, my piggy bank, uh, and came up with creative ways to do it. But, uh, I went and do the financial industry coming out of college because I wanted to kind of build a foundation, build some credibility. I went into investment banking, uh, and was an analyst and, uh, kind of spent a few years in that industry, uh, doing transactions, uh, you know, that were pretty complex for some large companies and working with really uh, high caliber type A people. Uh, ended up uh, getting into the food business because a, uh, a college roommate of mine, his family of all things, had the oldest operating meat company in Chicago. Mm. He knew that I'd had experience doing things like, uh, you know, basically capital raising, acquisitions, corporate strategy, and uh, he really trusted me. And for a lot of family businesses, uh, that kind of trust piece is really important. So they came to me and said, hey, can you help us expand strategically? We ended up buying a business all the while thinking I was going to you know, be a board member of the business and kind of help oversee it. And uh, next thing they know, they're like, hey, can you kind of jump into this thing and uh, kind of figure it out and run it for us? So I went from uh, kind of working with, uh, let's call it, uh, you know, accountants and lawyers and deal people uh, and uh, in, a, in a nice office to having to run a, you know, kind of a meat manufacturing company in uh, suburban Chicago and had a union and had labor and equipment and trucks and pretty much everything I knew nothing about. So pretty steep learning curve, but I came at it from the perspective of a financial person. Uh, and, uh, you know, I ask a lot of questions and, uh, you know, kind of don't always assume I have the answer and try to kind of get the right people involved and uh, kind of figure it out. So we ended up uh, kind of buying this business and uh, turning it around and growing it significantly. And I ended up selling my interest in the business to uh, my partner and his family. They consolidated it with their larger company and ultimately sold the whole thing to a big Chinese investor. Uh, but that really kind of got me into this food business and gave me kind of interest in all things consumer and retail and trying to kind of address consumer needs. And uh, I learned a lot about uh, you know what prevents companies from kind of innovating successfully or properly within the confines of an existing business. And uh, I decided that uh, I was going to stay in the food industry, but I was going to build the next business from scratch. My, my view is that it's really hard to change a culture. Some might argue impossible. And if you can kind of build the right culture, and culture is usually a function of kind of, you know, more than anything people, uh, then uh, you have a really good shot at building something special. So 
you asked about what gets me out of bed in the morning is that, uh, you know, number, first and foremost, it's taken, given us a lot of thought and I've seen myself in different situations. I could be in a really situation, but if I'm doing it with great people, I'm still going to be pretty excited about it. Now, if I can work with great people and work on something that I care about that I'm excited about, it's like it's magic. Uh, so for me, it's really just kind of working with great people and working on things that uh, that I'm excited about doing. That's, that's, that's fantastic. So I guess at the end of the day, you choose, you chose food over finance. Well, I chose food over finance. I mean, I've worked in beverage, I've worked in other consumer, I've worked in telecom, I've worked in a lot of different businesses, but I like food because it's very real. It's going through transformation. It's very personal to people. Uh, you know, so the, the whole idea of like, you could touch it, you know, literally taste it and, uh, you know, all that, uh, and benefit from it, I think is great. And, uh, I, I'm a people person. I love to talk to people. So when you've got a food product in the market, you're naturally going to have conversations with people about like, you know, the choices they make in food and what do they think about your product if they tried it? Or, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you probably are carrying your product with you, trying to get people to try it and give you feedback. So uh, I love the social aspect of it also for me is, you know, it, it, is it makes it easy to have really interesting conversations with people. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we don't all understand derivative investments, but we all eat food, right? Yeah, I remember like when I was in in investment banking, and uh, you know, I, I dated somebody, and she happened to be an, an artist, and uh, I probably explained to her a number of times exactly what I did, and it was like it was you know basically at the other day she's like yeah he just works in finance because it's just like it's not real uh, to people, it's just like it sounds like uh, you're pushing paper around and you know manipulating numbers and spreadsheets, but uh, yeah, so food the the real aspect of food to me is really interesting. It's a lot of like uh, people say like they love real estate because it's very tangible. I think food has, you know, many of those same attributes. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your journey, founding pre-brands, you know, what's, what's your mission and the company's mission. And at the end of the day, what makes the products different? So I'd say that, uh, you know, it, it all starts with a, with kind of a single overarching idea, which is that, uh, you know, give consumers what they want on their terms, instead of trying to kind of get consumers to buy what you want to give them on your terms. Mm. And I would say in a lot of these segments, particularly commodity type segments, they've been so used to uh, basically creating supply and then finding demand for that supply. Very few people in, in any of these kind of typically commodity or fresh segments, which are more commodity in their kind of culture and mindset, really ask that question. So I basically said, well, well look, we don't have a business yet. And I want to understand what consumers want in this segment. I don't believe that consumers are getting quite what they want in this segment. So let's figure that out. And we learned uh, kind of, you know, what, what consumers wanted, which which didn't really surprise us. I mean, consumers ultimately want uh, food that tastes great and is uh, and is good for them. Uh, and, uh, you know, they want to have confidence that, that it delivers on those things. And uh, there wasn't a lot of equity in the marketplace around those attributes. The like consumers were kind of used to just kind of going and taking what they can get and hoping and praying when they went to the store that they picked their meat right. Uh, and we kind of said, well, there's there's science, there's technology to kind of figure out, uh, you know, how to kind of make sure the consumers have the eating experience that they want. And then there's, you know, you could build supply chains to make sure that, uh, you know, the products are delivering the nutritional value it needs. And then you can kind of build packaging to get consumers comfortable with what it is and and uh, kind of express, you know, what you're about and uh, why it matters and why they should value it. And, you know, we just kind of went from the consumer backwards uh, and we built products and supply chains and packaging and and uh, and and distribution and everything 
around how do we give consumers the very best possible option of the marketplace? How do we build confidence and loyalty in what we're doing for them? And if we do that, it's a large enough segment that uh, I think it becomes an interesting proposition for investors and, you know, and investor capital I knew would be the fuel that would allow us to scale. So if I'm a consumer and I walk into the store and I see a pre-meat product, why do I buy that? What makes it different? And, uh, and if I really like it, why do I become loyal to the brand? So if you went into a store, typically what we would do is we would sell into a retailer uh, like a brand block. And we knew that in a large retail store with you know tens of thousands of SKUs and in a meat case that is just really chaotic is that we would need to stand out. And we would needed a physical presence in which to do that. Uh, so we would typically, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't launch a retailer unless we knew that we would have a minimum of six facings and that those six facings were together so that we had that brand block. And then, then we would basically capture people's attention by virtue of, uh, you know, color and other kind of what's called, you know, features of that brand block that would get consumers interested in learning more about it. Uh, and then, you know, so and that was things like color, uh, packaging, uh, display elements, you know, point of sale elements within the display. Uh, you know, our package was completely different. Uh, instead of products uh, laying down and, uh, you know, basically not being not, not something that you could walk by as a shopper and see the way you might in a cereal aisle or any other other aisles. Uh, you know, our product was propped up so you could see it. Uh, the packaging was a different color and was really, really kind of, I would say, uh, you know, unbiased, but beautiful uh, and, uh, you know, and, and really, really stood out. And I got consumers interested in interacting with it. And a key thing that we learned from consumers is that when consumers, you know, this is just kind of doing ethnographies, you know, in the field is consumers really didn't trust what they were buying and they wanted to kind of inspect it because it was such a high dollar ring within their shopping basket uh, and they're sitting there kind of, you know, basically turning the product, trying to see what they can't see because the product's typically in a tray of styrofoam or plastic. There's all these stickers. And we're like, well, why don't we just enable them to see what they're buying? And, uh, and, and if they can see what they're buying, then they'll have more confidence in it. And when they take it home, if we put the right product in that package and we can create a great experience, then, you know, to your question on like, you know, what makes them kind of loyal to it is like, well, if, if you buy a product and it delivers on what you expect or over delivers even on what you expect, you feel really good about it. And you buy it again and same thing happens. And after a while, you're like, wow, this is this is exactly what I expect to be getting every single time. And uh, that's, I think, how you build loyalty, just basically being able to kind of continue to reinforce that you deliver on your brand promise. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's kind of how we built the business is that we created great products, put them in great packaging. Uh, you know, invested in building awareness uh, and trial. And for us, trial was we want to get consumers to put this product in their mouth and understand, uh, you know, kind of what went into that eating experience. And if they did that, uh, you know, we had a really, really high conversion of taste trial into first purchase. And, you know, first purchase turns to second purchase and ultimately loyalty uh, if you keep delivering on, on what consumers expect. So let's describe the packaging for our listeners. I've I've seen it uh, on the uh, on the pre-brands website. It's it's uh you know you touched on transparency. So you've literally made the package transparent on both sides. Can you describe the rest of the packaging and how it uh, how it sort of reawakened a, a pretty mature category? 
Yeah, so the packaging basically combines a number of elements. So a tried and true technology in uh, you know in meat for a long time and other categories as well is vacuum packaging, roll stock film where they basically uh, remove the oxygen uh, from uh, the product. Oxygen is what causes shelf life deterioration. So they remove that, and uh, you know we basically took that. You can get different colors of film, and because we wanted to make sure consumers could see it, we made that clear. And then if you're going to maintain that clarity, there's just a lot of information you have to provide consumers and you will then obscure the product unless you have a platform on which to communicate. So we created that platform in the form of a chipboard and, uh, you know, that chipboard needed to have a certain, you know, thickness and durability to withstand a kind of retail, cold, often wet environment. Uh, And we took the clear vacuum film and then we attached it to this uh, really thick chipboard, uh, and uh, and and basically the product would hang from that chipboard in a way that you could pick the product up and inspect the underside, or you would you know without having to do anything, you could see it from the front. Uh, and that platform, this chipboard, was where we communicated. So we could suddenly provide because we created a uniformity of product, which we thought was really important. We kind of I wouldn't say we widgetized it, but because, you know, animals, unfortunately, are you know not exactly the same. Uh, we wanted to make sure that consumers could buy consistent size, thickness of product, consistent nutrition profile, et cetera. So we did all that. We were able to communicate on the package the nutrition facts of the product that you're buying, the, you know, uh, changes in fat calories. And we were able to make specific claims on, on reductions of fat, reductions in saturated fat, calories, you know, different types of vitamins, and this was like the first time that people were really able to make specific uh, performance claims on a meat package. And then we were able to have all the regulatory information that's required, like the USDA establishment, uh, different claims like paleo certified and non-GMO certified, all the things that consumers want to know and feel good about before they make their first purchase. Uh, we were able to communicate on that package because we had enough of a platform in which to do it. And we also created a package that allowed consumers to see all the product that they were buying. So just tremendous confidence in the product when you're in the store, which creates you know high propensity to give it a try. And then you know the, the product performs, and, uh, and 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 then you have a high likelihood of repeat. So I want to talk just a little bit more about the packaging, then get to the product inside the package. But I want to say even the colors, even the color palette you chose and just the fonts and things like that, they're not what you would expect with an animal protein product. And the way that the claims pop on here reminds me a little bit about somebody like uh, RX Bar, for example, and the way that they're claims are very prominent on the label. Did you take inspiration from other brands when you created this packaging? Yeah, so I would say that uh, when we created the packaging, uh, you know, and, and early on I had a, uh, you know, a, a head of marketing, you know, almost basically a co-founder, and she came from uh, the beauty care business. Mm. Uh, she worked of all things, I think, for Johnson & Johnson, and she was responsible for brands like Avino and Clean & Clear, which you know, your listeners may be familiar with it. It, it uh, almost it almost looks like a trendy uh, personal care brand package. Yeah, and, she, and and her mantra was, "I want to make beef beautiful," uh, and that was mm. really critical. Like we really wanted to kind of take something that consumers almost kind of had like an ick factor to. Like they didn't enjoy shopping the meat category. It's cold. It's wet. It's sometimes bloody, and we wanted to make it a great experience. Um, so that kind of really influenced them more than anything. I mean, the, in terms of kind of brands that are like 
and I think about it, it's like I, I like if Apple, if Steve Jobs were to enter the beast category, uh, uh, may he rest in peace. So that's never going to happen. But uh, you know, it, he he might take a similar approach, which is like design a product, you know, b- from the consumer backwards and focus on a consumer experience that is so definitively superior uh, that it just builds tremendous brand loyalty. Yeah, that's a that's a good analogy because he was obviously a, a big design aficionado. So we've talked a lot about the package and and kudos to you and to uh, to pre brands for some really compelling differentiating packaging. But let's talk about what's in the package now. It's it's different from a lot of products out there. It's all grass fed, right? Yeah. So uh, it is grass fed. One of the things that a lot of people don't uh, necessarily understand is that the global supply of beef is almost entirely grass fed. Uh, and I would say that, uh, you know, the, the supply of beef is, uh, you know, north of 80 percent of the beef in the world is grass fed. In the United States, it is about 98 percent grain fed. And if you were to rewind 10 years ago, it was 99 percent plus grain fed. We all beef was grass fed. All animals are raised on grass for a time. But in the United States, we changed our beef supply chain uh, to become more of a grain fed supply chain because we're really good at producing grain. Grain produces weight on animals more quickly and more predictably than grass does. Uh, so we converted our supply chain into uh, you know a grain fed supply chain where I'd say uh, you know there, there aren't too many arguments against this. We're the best producers in the world of that. But we moved away from grass-fed production. The rest of the world didn't have those same incentives. They weren't as efficient grain producers. Uh, they had more land uh, and maybe the right environments in terms of kind of climate, you know, sun, rain, all you know, good soil. So they stayed on a grass-fed system. The problem with grass-fed is that similar to wines and similar to kind of any natural products is that uh, you're you're a product of your environment and the environment changes uh, and, uh, you know, there, there are times that the grapes in Sonoma and Napa aren't that good. And, uh, you know, the vintages aren't that good. And consumers want to make sure if they're really kind of wine aficionados, they buy the right vintages from the right vineyards at the right times. Well, the same kind of stuff applies to beef. It's like you want to make sure that you are buying beef from the right places in the world, uh, from the right animals, uh, that were in the right environments at the right times. And there are ways scientifically to measure that. And what we learned is that across the world that there had been a lot of investment in science to make sure that, you know, to identify, well, what makes, uh, you know, great grass-fed beef and how they thought about that was the eating experience is a function of three major attributes, taste, tenderness, and juiciness. And if you think about kind of eating a steak or a burger, like those are kind of the key components. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and can you apply science to measure for that? Uh, and uh, we leveraged that investment. It was like probably nearly a hundred million dollar investment in Australia uh, to do that on hundreds of thousands of animals over a number of years across the world. So you kind of got to get a sense for different taste profiles uh, of consumers across the world. Uh, and we leveraged that science and we used that to put specifications on our suppliers. And we basically said, we realize you produce grass-fed beef. We don't want to buy grass-fed beef. We want to buy beef that is grass-fed, but also has these other attributes. And uh, and and we found suppliers that you know appreciated what we were doing in the U.S. and thought it would be a great opportunity, and they were willing to adapt their business practices to accommodate us and basically allow us to curate, let's call it the top five, ten percent of their supply, um, because we wanted to make sure that when consumers bought our product, 
it wasn't simply grass-fed. It was going to be great beef that happened to be grass-fed, and they can rely on it to be great beef uh, every single time because we think that the opportunity to create a large business is going to be more a function of delivering taste with health versus health with taste compromise. So that all sounds terrific, great taste and great health and all that, but can you get a little more detail? What are the attributes and the specifications? So it's, it's, th- it's things like, uh, so breed of animal, you know, in the United States, you know, Angus is celebrated. There's uh, I'd say that that's kind of good. They've gone a little bit too far with that, but in general, there are breeds of cattle that um, are that, that deliver particularly positive eating experiences. And Angus happens to be one of them. Angus is a British breed. Uh, Hereford is another type of British breed. So we would specify British breeds only. Uh, so that would be one attribute. We would specify things like pH level of the of, of the of the animal. So there's body chemistry in the animal. So that pH level is going to determine basically. Uh, how well that animal's treated, what life it's had, and that life is going to contribute to kind of the tenderness of that meat. We would specify size of animals. So we knew that consumers ultimately wanted, let's say, a steak that was a certain thickness that they would be able to prepare in the same way every time. And uh, that is proportionate to the size of the animal because a ribeye in a, let's call it a 1,200-pound uh, you know, Angus steer is going to be very different size-wise than a ribeye and a 1,600-pound Angus steer. So we wanted to make sure we can deliver that consistently. It was uh, things like meat color. There's variations of that. Well, consumers want a certain color. I mean, if they're used to buying something, they, 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 they're, they people buy with their eyes. Uh, so how do you deliver a consistent color of meat, consistent color of fat? Uh, you know, marbling actually matters. It's not everything, but... Uh, you want to have certain levels of marbling. So you can get grass-fed beef that's super lean, uh, and it has all the health in the world because it has no fat in it, uh, but people aren't going to really want to eat that very regularly. So we wanted to kind of make sure we were able to calibrate all the factors that we understood from consumers would deliver the combination of taste, tenderness, and juiciness. And those were largely the factors. There are some others, um, but uh, those were the kind of the most important ones. And, uh, and, 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 and we were able to do that at some scale. I mean, and look, there's, you, you can create specifications that get you down to the point where there's one animal in the world that meets all those requirements. So you kind of have to calibrate, let's call it perfect world from a consumer perspective with real world and just kind of find the balance where you can deliver something reliably, uh, and, and at some scale to turn it into a, a viable business. Okay, so so anecdotes coming back from consumers. What's what are you hearing out there? Is it, oh, I'd never tried grass fed meat, and now I tried pre, and I like it better than grain fed, or is it, uh, you know, I tried grass fed and it was dry and chewy, and I didn't like it, but pre is not like that. What what are the stories coming back from consumers? So so what we heard, and we probably interacted with, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of consumers. We. You know, we built the brand a lot through experiential marketing. So we're like literally doing demos in stores, events where we're touching and putting food into, you know, a uh, hundred to hundreds of consumers' mouths. As, as, you're, experiment, as you're experimenting or post-launch? Uh, well, we did, we did some of that. Like, so we did probably, we touched hundreds of consumers in terms of initial kind of research before we launched. And then we're, once we launched, we were doing, you know, we were touching probably thousands of consumers on a weekly basis. 
And we were constantly getting feedback and learning and figuring out, you know, what we can improve upon, how we kind of position the information differently or, you know, whatever the communication is like. We really want to understand what's inherent in consumers' minds to make sure that we're communicating in a way that is most understandable to them, that is most, also most compelling to them. So one of the things that we, 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 we learned early on is that while grass-fed had kind of gotten a lot of buzz, there was such poor execution of grass-fed to date. You know, you had kind of a commodity industry that, you know, kind of said, okay, well, we can check the box of grass-fed, and this is grass-fed, let's send this to market. There was such an inconsistency in eating experience amongst consumers. A lot of consumers didn't really trust that grass-fed was going to be deliver, able, able to deliver a great piece of meat. So many people kind of dismissed and said, yeah, it's healthier for you, but like, when I have steak, I want to, you know, I, I, I want to indulge. Prime, I prime great steak. That, and what I'm imagining, I'm like, I want, I want something great. So, mm. in many ways, grass-fed was a liability um, because people perceived it to be uh, an inferior eating experience and uh, something that they didn't want to repeat again. So over time, we ended up kind of actually taking grass-fed to become a smaller and smaller part of the brand communication. And really made the brand communication about what the brand represented, which is really around taste and health. And oh yeah, by the way, it has claims like grass-fed, like non-GMO, like no hormones, no antibiotics. But we really needed to figure that out from consumers to understand what's in their heads and how do I think that they call it, the, you know, communication architecture. We really had to think through that community, you know, that brand and communication architecture to make sure we're saying the right things with the right strength and in the right order uh to resonate with consumers and be believable hmm. so you curated the heck out of this product it, 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 you took a you know a commodity and you could even think of grass-fed as becoming a commodity now but you said no 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 not all grass-fed is alike um that's correct is anybody else doing that in this category or are you the, you you would you, uh, would you mean, say you're the leaders so I would say that, I mean, we were for over three years the uh, fastest growing company in the United States in the category, according to Nielsen. Uh, and we were seeing much better success in terms of like measures like dollars per point of distribution, you know, dollars per point of ACV. I mean, we were a very kind of data driven, metric driven company uh, and, you know, kind of repeat loyalty, exclusive repeat, all these different metrics that brands I think look at and retailers look at. We were crushing it on. So I would say I don't know that anybody was doing quite what we were doing. And I would say that that was a function of just being built differently. And one of the things that I decided early on was that we pretty much wouldn't work with people. We didn't hire any employees. And I think, you know, employees are ultimately the heart of any business. Um, it, it, we wouldn't hire anybody that really came from the industry. And the reason is mm. not that, they, you know, that the people of the industry are bad. It's just that people that have worked in the industry a long time, they just have a certain lens, and, uh, and, and, and you start to look at things through that lens and, and it's kind of like they say to like to every, to every surgeon, a solution involves a knife. Well, it's like, you know, there's, it, it, you just have kind of in, embedded in you a certain point of view and that changes where you end up in terms of your decision making. And I kind of said, I, I want people just like this business is built from a clean slate. I want people with a clean slate. I want people that th that understand consumer and trying to build businesses from the consumer's perspective but I don't want people of the industry. I use the same example. I'm like, it's not like Tesla's hiring engineers from Ford and GM. Uh, you know, the, the reverse may be true. The Fords and GMs may want to hire the Tesla engineers. But if you're going to get to a different answer, you kind of have to come from a different place and look at things holistically. 
So that's obviously counterintuitive, but yet very clever. And it, it ties into how you built your company and how you built your culture. But you need a lot of breathing room for that. How did you get all the breathing room? Because a lot of companies would say, hey, we're, you know, we're burning daylight. Our investors are giving us pressure. Let's go hire some experts and let's launch. So I think that uh, you know, a, a number of things uh, you know, happened. There is, uh, you know, we were, you know, we, we, you kind of have to marry kind of proof of concept with capital, uh, you know, at the right times, I'd say, you know, what, what was helpful was that we were, uh, one, uh, you know, founded in my case by someone who had experience in the business and had credibility, uh, kind of with investors and had, you know, the ability to kind of convince them that what I'd done before can now be leveraged to do this bigger and better, uh, you know, uh, another time. Uh, and uh, just understanding the capital raising process, I think, is is, is really helpful. Um, you know, building a team, and it's just like basically getting the right people together and attacking a problem that matters. So one of the things that I think investors look at is things like I guess they call it TAM, total addressable market. Mm-hmm. How big a market is this? And when you kind of think about like you know part of the reason that like the Beyond Meats of the world that are not you know that's not public are valued so highly is because they're going after a massive, massive market. And you can basically say to yourself, like, hey, if these guys just get a couple percent of that market, that alone will be big enough to, you know, reward all of us for kind of taking this risk and making the investment. So I think that that's helpful. Going after a large market, having the experience in that market, surrounding yourself with really great people, uh, and then having early proof points that you can leverage to convince people that, that that it's not just a vision or theory, there, there's 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 a consumer need or white space that really needs addressing. It it sounds like you 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 had a good conflux of things going on. You had uh, your background in finance. You were successful previously with a meat company. You knew how to pitch investors. Uh, you know, a lot of people trying to launch in a category like this, they're they're not gonna they're not gonna have that kind of background. Yeah. You, you know, what kind of advice would you would you have for for mere mortals trying to move into a new food category? Uh, I mean, I think that uh, you know, I, I, this this keeps being kind of a theme in this conversation and in my life. But I would say, just surround yourself with great people early. Um, you know, I, I could I would often say to investors, and they kind of look at me funny. I'd say, I hope I'm the dumbest person in this room. Um, and uh, you know, I kind of believe that. I think that. It's it's not important as the founder that you're the you're, you're the smartest uh, or the best. It's what's important is that you're able to recruit people uh, that are the smartest and the best to attack you know difficult problems. Uh, so I would say that make sure that you get the right people involved. So I it's, think that if you get the right people involved, you give yourself a shot at being successful. Yeah, and it's it's always spot on advice. You know, hire great people. But how did you do that? What was your pitch to get the the best and the brightest to join pre brands? Um, well, I mean, no, really not, not a lot different than kind of pitching investors is that I think people are compelled by kind of what's called big ideas going after big markets. Uh, so size of prize matters to investors. I think it matters to prospective employees. Uh, you know, one of the things that I kind of you know, believe from the very beginning and will do in any business I build, you know, down the line is, you know, equity is a really kind of important incentive. Like, we're building something like, are we all sharing in the rewards of, of the effort? So I made every single person that was involved in the business an equity holder. And then another thing that I did is I made their equity exactly like mine. 
And I thought that was really important. Is that I didn't want to sit in a room where people are like, well, what's the founder's incentive versus my incentive? And like, how are they different? Can he win while I lose? You know, those kinds of things. Those are, I think, really kind of like those are cancerous almost to, you know, the potential of a, of a team to do something great. So I basically said to everybody, look, look, everyone's equity is identical. We're building, we're baking one cake. Yes, there are different slices of that cake, but it's one cake. And if we're really successful and, you know, we bake that cake, it's going to, and it comes out delicious. We're all going to be eating from that same cake. And I think that was really, really important. Mm -hmm. What kind of response did you get from people when you explained that? I mean, it was, I mean, it was awesome. I think that, uh, you know, people really respected it and it was like, it attracted the right kind of people. Um, you know, there's, uh, I think that, you know, one of the things I found is that there's not everybody is comfortable with risk in this world. And one of the things that I did was, you know, you, you can hire away people, pay them as they're at what they're getting paid before, potentially more, give them equity on top of it. And, uh, you know, of course they're going to be excited about it. But one of the other principles I had is I wanted kind of people to invest a little bit into what we were doing and I wanted to give them outsized rewards if we're successful. So let's just say hypothetically to keep the numbers simple, you were making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah. You'd easily come over if I'd pay you more than that and give you equity, but I wouldn't, I'd kind of say like, Hey, well, how about 90,000? I'll give you this equity. And if that equity works, uh, you know, the, the $10,000 a year that you're basically you know, effectively investing in the business could pay you 20, 30, 50 times that. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and that kind of told, if somebody was excited about that, that told me that there, there was a good chance that they were the right kind of mindset for doing something like this. And if somebody was kind of all around, you know, all about salary, then I'm like, that's probably, it's not kind of the, the, the risk taking mindset and the upside, uh, you know, kind of, and let's do this all together mindset I wanted. Yeah. Great, uh, great advice. So we've been having a great conversation here, you know, lots of fun things your company's been through, packaging, really curating a different kind of product from the producers you work with, hiring, uh, hiring best and the brightest, all that kind of stuff. It, it all sounds good, but I'm sure there were a lot of bumps. Tell us about the bumps. What, are, what were some of the biggest challenges you encountered? Uh, well, I'd say that, uh, you know, the, 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 day-to-day -day challenge in our business was, uh, you know, and I'd say as, as much as I had kind of experience with, you know, raising capital, you know, raising capital was a constant, uh, kind of challenge within the business, kind of this whole, like prove, you know, prove it, uh, you know, get, get investors to, to understand it, uh, you know, kind of get the valuation of the terms that reflect their understanding of that, uh, and then kind of go back and like build the business. So I would say, uh, I would probably uh, apply a different capital raising strategy than I, than I did. I'd say that I was always focused on things like dilution, uh, maintaining control, if you will. Uh, and I'd say that if I could do this again, I would probably have raised larger amounts of capital earlier in the business at maybe you know less attractive theoretical valuations. Uh, but I think we would have gotten further faster if the business didn't constantly have to worry about capital. Mm. Uh, another thing that I learned is that, uh, you know, it, I learned, I mean, a lot, I'd say made a lot of mistakes. And I, I think now, like, I'm like, I, I sound smart to some of these entrepreneurs, but I wasn't that smart a few years ago when I made all these, these mistakes I'm trying to help them avoid. But the people piece of it, I think is really just as critical, if not more so, is I hired a lot of people based off of resumes. I'd say that one of my blind spots coming from investment banking is, you try to hire people that went to the top schools and have the highest IQs, that have the highest GMAT scores, like all kind of objective 
kind of uh, criteria. And I would say that, uh, you know, what I learned is, uh, you know, that, that's not necessarily the, the kind of the right background to be successful in a startup. Uh, yeah, I'd say that emotional intelligence, uh, you know, is is more important than, you know, kind of raw intelligence. And ideally, yeah, both. But if you're a, if you're simply an intelligent person, but you lack emotional intelligence, you're going to be really, really a challenge to work with in a startup. Um, and, uh, you know, also I'd say that people that don't have experience in startups, I would never today hire anybody uh, in, in, in a meaningful role that hadn't already kind of demonstrated they can be successful in a startup and de-risk that piece of it. I had people that I would describe as, you know, kind of entrepreneurs. They came from large companies. They were smart. They had great backgrounds and accomplished incredible things, but never really did it in a resource-constrained, I have no idea what tomorrow looks like. I don't have all the information I want to have. I can't buy all the help I want to buy. Uh, you know, though, that, that's just a very different skill set. And I kind of say to people, I'm like, look, if you're in a big company and you could turn a dime, a dollar into a dollar ten, uh, great. If you can take that dollar and do it for 90 cents and turn it into a dollar ten, you're a hero. Well, in a startup, you don't even have a dollar. So if you're going to use a dime, you're in the business of turning dimes into dollars. And that's just a very, very, very different mindset. I think it takes a different type of person. Uh, so I'd say that, uh, you know, and on the capital raising piece and on the people piece, uh, yeah. Those were probably the biggest mistakes uh, the in the development of the business. Higher from the uh, school of hard knocks versus the Ivy League. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think that it's good to have uh, you know people that have that have those backgrounds, but I would take fire in the belly, uh, as as some call it, mm -hmm. over kind of you know kind of high test scores and and Ivy League degrees any day. I'm here with Lenny Leibovich, who is the founder of Pre Brands. Lenny, you talked a little bit about the market research you did in store. And, and uh, by the way, kudos to you. Uh, the very first guest on this podcast, Eric Kiker of the Digestible Brand, talks about how he thinks innovators and disruptors, instead of giving away those free samples in stores as a way to drive revenue, what they should really be doing is using that as a way to do on-the-spot consumer research. So, Sounds like you did some great things there. Anything else you can share with our listeners on other market research you did or other product development research that you did that really mattered? I mean, we you know did some because we had somebody that came from you know kind of a big CPG background. She had done the entrepreneurial stuff. She had worked in a startup, you know, before Johnson Johnson. She had worked on the agency side with startups, you know, even before that. We kind of applied some of the CPG tools. So we did things like you know, qualitative research where we did focus groups. Uh, we did some online surveys. Um, you know, it, it, we did obviously kind of the, you know, the, the, the ethnography. So we did a lot of, I think, what, uh, you know, traditional kind of research does. Um, but we were very involved. So I'd say that oftentimes, you know, you, in, in large companies, you hire somebody that you let them go out and do the work, you get a report. We're like going and like watching this consumers. We're like literally sending in questions like, Hey, clarify this. Like, I think a lot of time, like, you know, you, there, there's, there's a lot more insight to be had, but it has to be kind of the right people that are involved to ask the right questions. Um, so they, you know, I think that that's the approach we took. I mean, we didn't have all the money in the world. We didn't spend hundreds of thousands of hours doing, doing stuff, but you know, we probably, you know, had 25 to 50 consumers in total across different focus groups. We did a few hundred consumers, uh, online, uh, you know, asking questions. We did, a, we had a, done a number of surveys. 
we put kind of key things in front of consumers like, hey, what do you think about this brand? What do you think about this positioning and story? What do you think about the packaging? You know, what what do, what do you think about everything else that's happened in the category? What 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 comes to mind as you look at these other folks? Uh, we really, really want to get as deep down into what's in the psyche as possible. Because I'd say that, uh, you know, consumers don't, you know, consumers and Steve Jobs, I think, always said this is like, if you ask, you know, consumers, uh, you know, what they wanted 100 years ago, they would have told you like another another horse and buggy. You know, so it's like it's sometimes you just have to kind of really dig deep uh, to understand kind of what the need is instead of asking them kind of what they want. Because I think at the end of the day, consumers will want what they've seen before, maybe an improved version of it. But it's hard for them to imagine what doesn't exist yet. Yeah, and so you, got, you, you got to figure that out. They'll fib to you too, right? They'll say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to eat a lot of junk food every day, right? But uh, maybe they do eat a fair amount of junk food every day, or what have you. Well, I would say, yeah. There's many instances where what people say and, and the data of what they actually did, uh, there's a lot of daylight between those two, and they often say, you know, judge people not by what they say, but what they do, and I think that that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the category. Uh, let's the whole protein and, and animal protein category. So you touched on it. We have Beyond, Impossible, many many other plant based startups. Cultivated meat is still in the R and D phase, but it seems to be getting closer in terms of economies of scale. You've got you know the big companies like Hormel and Tyson and. Smithfield and others uh, taking their stab at uh, new and innovative products. So what's what's pre-strategy to continually have a, a nice niche carved out in this market? So I think that what's happening, and I, and I remember, uh, you know, Steve, uh, you know, McDonald, who was the founder of Applegate. Uh, so I have to kind of give him credit for this. He said mm-hmm. this you know, more br- than a decade great ago. Great brand. Yeah, he said, he said, he said, the future of meat is, uh, you know, less meat, but better. And I think that that's what's happening for the majority of consumers is that, you know, the reality is that, uh, you know, consumers are, you know, really concerned about their health. Uh, they're concerned about the environment and you know, animal welfare, et cetera. So mm-hmm. meat is for many people becoming kind of almost like a kind of a guilty pleasure. And when consumers make the choice to eat meat, they want to make sure that they're checking a number of boxes for themselves to feel good about it. So I would say that, you know, pre is positioning itself to be the very best possible option. So it's great beef. It has to be mm. more than anything. It has to deliver that. And then, okay, it has to check some emotional boxes for you. Like it's pasture raised or grass fed. So the animals are, you know, in, 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 the, in a great environment. It doesn't have hormones and antibiotics. It doesn't have GMOs, uh, you know, things of that sort. Um, so we want to be the very best possible option to a consumer that's choosing to eat meat more selectively. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then there's going to be a variety of other options. So like the reality is that the majority of people don't have the luxury of worrying about all these things. They're just trying to feed their families. You know, the average you know, consumer in this country is kind of living paycheck to paycheck. So you know, th- th- this premium stuff doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. Uh, but, uh, we're, you know, we're trying to make that as accessible as possible for more people. But I think that even people that are kind of struggling paycheck to paycheck, I think that they're going to eat less meat and they're going to probably buy better stuff when they do. Uh, and then there's the, you know, the, the folks that, you know, kind of want a non meat alternative. And I would say that the size of that market is going to be proportionate to, you know, the quality of the product, uh, and the kind of nutrition of the product. 
Um, and I'd say that, uh, you know, so long as there are great options like pre out there that deliver great meat, uh, and uh, the alternatives don't quite deliver that experience. Um, and I think that the, the, those alternatives will, you know, have a, a more limited, you know, kind of let's call it market size than they'd like to have. And then to the extent that there are, you know, that, that, that those alternatives are extremely processed and viewed as less helpful, I think that will further kind of impair their opportunity. So I'm really interested to see kind of how the plant-based options evolve. Can they kind of make them less processed? Do we need to have, you know, a 20 plus ingredient, uh, you know, kind of processed alternative to a single ingredient natural, uh, you know, item? Uh, you know, I think I, I'm probably more optimistic on the lab-based piece uh, because cultivated, you know, theoret- yeah, theoretically, like they can, you know, they can basically create meat. They can mm-hmm. create, you know, the same steak, the same ground beef that you're getting from a, you know, living, breathing animal uh, in a lab. And if they can do that, and it's a single ingredient product, I think that it, it has huge potential. Then, then it's a question of, you know, whether consumers are comfortable with the science. And the health impacts of that science, and uh, you know, and, and then at cost. Uh, so uh, yeah, but I think that look, there's there's just different segments. There's the vegetarian segment. There's the vegan segment. You know, there's there there's there, it's it's just a huge market. So there's really I think a, a mm. significant opportunity for anybody that's actually listening to consumers has identified a segment of consumers that they want to be relevant to. And then just focuses on delivering something great for that segment. I, I like your niche because, you know, flexitarians, we all know that's a trend. And so even if I'm not a wealthy consumer, if I've decided, hey, I'm not going to eat beef three or four times a week and eat in, uh, rather than eat inexpensive beef three or four times a week, I'm going to eat a really good steak once a week and really indulge. Uh, and that's, yep. that sounds like a great opportunity for pre. Yep, for sure. So what can you share with our listeners about Pre's long-term strategy and where the company might be going next? So, I mean, today, I mean, Pre is still in fairly limited distribution. So like, you know, the, you know, I guess the term is like ACV, which is like basically distribution share, you know, for those that are not quite as familiar with the acronyms is like today, I mean, Pre has distribution in roughly, you know, two, you know, maybe 3% of the market. So the goal is to, you know, scale pre to be in kind of as much of that market that's relevant. Roughly how many, how many stores are you in today? Roughly? Uh, about, uh, you know, 550, 600 stores. Mm -hmm. All Midwest, uh, Chicago. Uh, well, yes. So all of the retail distribution is in, in the Midwest, except recently we launched, uh, in, in, uh, the Northeast in the New York area through Wakefern, which, you know, many people out there know as ShopRite. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we're available nationally through Amazon Fresh. And uh, so Amazon Fresh, I think today would say that they are able to deliver to like 80% of the population. Mm-hmm. So we deliver to them on a weekly basis to all their distribution centers. And, you know, we, we, you know, we do really, really well through Amazon. Consumers love it. Their reviews are fantastic. So, and then the other, additionally, like uh, there's the, you know, direct consumer piece. So if consumers want to buy this, they can buy it directly from, from pre and, uh, you know, and we'd ship it to you and uh, you can have it anywhere in the country. But the truth is that most consumers want to buy product like this in a retail environment. And the big upside opportunity for the company is to get more and more retail distribution. Uh, and, uh, you know, so working on that and uh, a lot of it is just basically proving yourself in the market, having the data, 
demonstrating to you know additional customers that aren't carrying it today what their opportunity is, uh, how much you know more they can sell, which consumer they're addressing, what the shopping basket looks like, how much profitability you'll drive. At the end of the day, you know retailers have a business, and that is to kind of maximize their opportunity within you know the the square footage they have. And if you can demonstrate you know through you know data that uh, that you'll do a better job for them than you know what they're doing today, then it's only a matter of time before. I think there's, you know, there's more acceptance. So that's, that's the focus, just expanded distribution, you know, really West, East, uh, you know, Southeast, et cetera. And it makes total sense because your packaging is such a visual and a tactile experience for consumers. So, you know, why not get it in that meat case? For sure. So Lenny, before we go into wrap up, is there anything else, any other words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I mean, I, you know, I consider myself an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, that some people, you know, may celebrate that some people may curse it. You know, one of the things that I love doing on the side is I like working with, you know, entrepreneurs, younger people. And, you know, for me, you know, the, the, the big question I, I, I end up kind of distilling things down to for people is trying to understand the why around what they're doing. Like doing something innovative is really hard. It's very risky and all likelihood you're going to fail. Uh, and that's hard for kind of people to get their head wrapped around. But I think that if you if if you have the right why, and I think what is it, Simon Sinek, you know, had this big uh, kind of TED talk about the why. The golden the why circle. Is really important. Yeah, it's like the, the why is important because the why is that kind of that fire in the belly. It's the emotional piece of it that is going to push you forward, help you solve problems, just get through the muck uh, of trying to innovate and do something in the market. And I often joke that. You know, the world is happy being the way it is. And if you want to change it, even in some small way, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a battle uh, and it's not going to go exactly as expected. So the why is really what pushes you forward. The why is the blanket that keeps you warm at night. If it's about the what, uh, you know, it's like things like, oh, I'm going to have more flexibility or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make a ton of money or whatever it is. Well, I'm like, yeah, you're kidding yourself. So for me, it's, I would recommend to people if they're going to go and try to do something really, you know, really creative and, and try to innovate, uh, make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. It's good advice here at our company. When we onboard new employees, we have them all watch that uh, 12 or 15 minute video by Simon Sinek on on the yep. why. It's about being mission driven, right? Yeah, well, it's about being mission driven. I think that like you know, society is kind of changing, and consumers really appreciate uh, companies that. You know, are doing things for you know reasons that they value, and uh, you know, no, we no longer can kind of hide behind uh, kind of walls and kind of craft the message. I, you know, one of the other things I say it's like over time you develop these kind of expressions. And I say we all live in glass houses, and some of us believe that uh, is that uh, like we can no longer control the message. Like you have to kind of do the right things, and that has to be how you're built. You can't do the right things because you're going to be you know reviewed or evaluated for doing the right things. It's like, that just has to be who you are. And, uh, and, and if you do those things and you communicate, you know, the, the, the why behind your business, uh, you know, the, the, an increasing segment of consumers really appreciate it and they value it. And uh, that's really where kind of, I think the future is and where the growth is. Good advice. Good summary. I want to thank my guest today, Lenny Leibovich of Pre-Brands. Lenny, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, this was great. I really appreciate it and hope uh, somebody gets some value out of it. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. 
Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play. This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own.